One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm sorry, Miss Natchbute. Ooh, I am for real. Never meant to let your neck cream dry. I apologize a trillion times. Welcome, everybody, to Natchbute. Uh, I hope you liked a little outcast today. I mean, when who wouldn't, honestly? That's your business. Hello, welcome to Nash Butte. I am your, your host, Jackie J, the beauty talk shock jock, your queen of creams, your host with the most serums and freshest fringe on the West Coast, your favorite over 30 niche influencer, your kooky southern aunt. Welcome to Nash Butte. I am so excited about this episode today. I'm going to be honest with y'all. Today is a different episode. Um, today's episode is going to be pretty light on the makeup talk, okay? Um, because we're going to be talking about healthcare today. Which, honestly, what's more beautiful than that? It's self-care, it's important, and we also care about our fellow humans on this planet, and we want to educate ourselves and be informed citizens. Um, so specifically, we're going to be discussing trans healthcare, among other things. And my guest today is a true inspiring queen. She is a physician assistant in Los Angeles. She's a mother of two, and they are little babies, honey, okay? Little baby mama. And, you know, funny enough, we actually met because a decade ago, I was in a very silly movie with her husband. Um, a very, very silly movie, I'll just say. Um, but we're not here to discuss that. We're here to discuss transgender health, transgender health care. We're going to take your questions. Please welcome Kayla McLaughlin to Natchview. Hello, my darling. Hello. Woohoo. <laughs> um, it is so nice to see you. It's so nice to see you too. And thank you for, you know, taking time out of your schedule. Uh, I get into it later, but I, I am going to ask you about balancing work, life, motherhood, all those things. But thank you for just sure. taking the time to be here with me today. Yeah, of course. I think um, there's a lot of stuff happening in our world right now. And I think it's kind of hard to find information. And I think that, you know, I just kind of realized, like, I have very specific information that I can give to people to educate them about trans health care, you know, people that are outside of trans health care. Which um, I would argue are most of us. Yeah. And I want to just make that information kind of accessible to everybody. Well, we're happy to have you. We're going to start with the, the Nashville questions. The first one is what type of skin do you have? What type of skin? I think I have combination skin. I mean, I'll give you this. Your skin looks great. Thank you. Um, I have been using an LED mask. I got to say that this camera is not... I was trying to do this on my desktop, and I was like, whoa, this webcam, I look amazing. And then I just, like, last minute had to use this computer, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> no, I think you look really good. You know what I Thanks. You know what I recently realized? Zoom, which we are not on right now, but Zoom has a filter. It's called, like... um enhance filter or something and mm. it just barely blurs you and once I figured that out I was like oh I'm set for life yeah yeah and I think honestly now that like a lot of people will be working from home and stuff like you don't really need to people will be wearing less makeup because they can just do it digitally 
which is kind of cool. Oh, but yeah. It'd be cool if we could have some of those crazy snap filters. Like we look like a puppy dog during our meeting or something <laughs> like that. I'm not mad at it. Why not? Yeah. Maybe people will take on those. Maybe like the furries will take on those identities. I can't wait. Meetings. I can't <laughs> wait. Okay. Kayla, what is your favorite thing about yourself? Oh my gosh. My favorite thing about myself. Hmm. I'd have to say that I kind of am a low anxiety person. I'm kind of like go with the flow, easy breezy. Things don't really get to me a lot um, in terms of that kind of thing, I guess. That's lovely. I like, I, I, I prevent my own suffering a lot of the time. The first time I noticed that I had that trait was in college. I was taking a chemistry test, a chemistry final, and like I studied as hard as I could. And I remember I took the test and I left like four entire pages blank. Like <laughs> I just like, I just didn't know the answers. And I remember like, as I was taking the test, I was sort of like sweating and just like so nervous. And then when I left, I was like, you know what? it's over. Like I can't do anything. And I just kind of have that attitude, which I like, which oh. is important in healthcare. Cause you can always yes. feel like you should be doing more. You should be doing more. And, um, that is so beautiful. I have a really ha hard time with mindfulness. Um, mm -hmm. I always am dwelling on either the past or the future. It's really hard. I've been working on it really hard in my therapy, mm -hmm. but like, it's hard. So I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I do the same thing. I definitely like future trip a lot. Yeah. Like I, I, I look to the future of like things that I want and I want them now essentially. But yeah. I think that that, that trait has also helped me a lot in motherhood, especially with having two little ones where I'm not the mom or parent that like if they're not like sitting up by a certain age I'm like freaking out I'm just I don't know that again so like that. very healthy uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> my last opening question that I've recently added is what is your favorite color my favorite color I gotta say it's been green pretty much my whole life is your I shirt green color. yeah yeah a Jim James shirt very from cute my morning jacket very cute. <laughs> we love. Okay, let's get into talking. The first thing I want to ask you, for people who are unaware uh, of the physician assistant profession, I just want to say I respect the PAs. I have had PAs basically be my entire healthcare providers over the last decade of my life. Um, I think it's a really noble profession and a very interesting profession. So I just wanted to give an endorsement of that. Um, and so could you maybe tell us why you chose the PA route, what the training of, for that is like, um, mm -hmm. and um, anything like that, sort of like, and then also your specific training in your specialty. Okay. And then maybe why somebody would choose the PA career if anyone out there is young and thinking of pursuing medicine. Because I truly, mm -hmm. tr I truly think the PAs are running this town, running the world. <laughs> who run they the world? Are. Physician I... assistants. Who run the world? Physician <laughs> assistants. I just, I just think they're great. I love being a PA. Um, it is the absolute perfect job for me. And the path, how I got set on the path, um, Whenever I went to college, I wanted to be a physical therapist, and uh, so I started volunteering or working at a physical therapy clinic, doing like tech work and just helping patients. And there, I learned a lot of um, patients, like patients with patients, because 
um, you know, older people that have injuries and stuff, you have to walk them from like the exercise mat to the treadmill. And I just really learned how to like talk to people in exams. Um, and I also remember I was thinking about this the other day. I had an experience where a man who had had a stroke, I was helping him do some leg exercises. And it was hard to understand him um, because he'd had a stroke that affected his speech. And so whenever I was talking to him and trying to explain his exercises, um, I was speaking, I was trying to match his speech and I was like speaking very slowly. And then, um, you know, he signaled to me with, to, he wanted to write something and he wrote like, I can understand you. You don't have to talk to me like that. And that was just a huge thing for me of like the way that you perceive people and how like he receives healthcare and I just kind of started thinking about that a lot. Um, the differences in how well people are after they have a health event um, based on what kind of insurance they have or what kind of support they have or what kind of will to live they have based on the factors in their life. Um, so then there were people like people in physical therapy offices often like have had surgeries. So I was like, I want to watch a surgery. So I went into a surgery, a knee surgery, and it was one orthopedic surgeon running four ORs with a PA. And they were just like, I'd never heard of what a PA was before. Her name was Darcy, I remember. And I was like, cool, smashing pumpkins. And she was running these operating rooms. And her and the surgeon, who was also female, were like, this great team and I I was like this is amazing I did not know you could like be in an operating room and then you know I don't know assisting the surgeon so I talked to her for a little bit and I got to shadow her a few more times and uh, she was really cool and she was like definitely be a PA so a physician assistant is a master's level program um, so it's very similar to a nurse practitioner in the practice a lot of the ways, but the education is a little bit different. So nurses become nurses through a bachelor's program, and then nurse practitioners can be a doctorate of nursing. There's also a master's level nursing. Um, and then for physician assistants, you have a four-year degree in you know some kind of science or something, and then you go on to two years of PA school. But the difference with PAs is that a lot of times it's, since it's only a two-year program after school, it's a very intense two years. Um, a lot of people, like, it's very well known that, like, PA programs start with, like, 75 students and only, like, 50 graduate or whatever. Um, I mean, that would be a really low number in that class size. But anyway, um, so there's a lot of people who do it as a... Um, second career. So there were people in my class, like someone was a former pastor. Um, someone was a former like Miss Pennsylvania beauty contestant. Yeah. She looked fly every single day. <laughs> I remember like, but yeah, so it's a lot of people who have had careers where they have to, you know, talk to people and they have, a, they're kind of known for having really good bedside manner. Um, but in, so recently with like COVID-19, the way that the American Medical Association had a bunch of medical students sort of graduate a little bit early um, so then they could help out with the crisis. The profession of PAs uh, came out of World War II, essentially. There was a shortage of physicians. So PAs were brought forth. It, it basically started in the military. So like all the first PAs were like men in the military. And they were people who were able to like kind of just do the first two years of med school and then go out and do primary care. So PAs generally trained as a generalist. We go through all the major disciplines of medicine and can kind of slot ourselves anywhere. Most people get into their niche, like dermatology or whatever, and stay there. But you also have the flexibility of like, okay, if I have to like move to Texas tomorrow, 
I could work in endocrinology or I could work in ER, you know, those kinds of things. So I like that flexibility too. Um, and PAs, just to make sure I get it right, can be in a surgery room? Assisting? So the physician assistant is the only true first assist to the surgeon. So nurses, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, they don't really have that much surgery training unless they specifically go on to be like a surgical assist. That's like a separate kind of program. But a physician assistant is is essentially like we're trained through surgery. So a lot of surgeons utilize PAs as like their second set of hands. Wow. So in what I do, um, the part that's like, so for example, with the knee surgeries, the surgeon has to make the first incision. They have to like do the surgery part, but anything that's considered like closing the surgical wound, like once the procedure's over or all that kind of stuff, like the PA can do that. So wow. PAs make doctors flexible in that they can operate in four rooms at one time. Wow. They just rotate and then the PA kind of follows them and closes. So for what I do, which is uh, gender affirming bottom surgery, and then I also support the facial feminization program is I'm just sort of like the main hub person that's available, clinical person that's available to our patients. Um, and then I scrub into surgeries and then I have, um, pre and post-op clinics for those patients. And, uh, PAs can write prescriptions, right? Yeah. So PAs can do pretty much anything a doctor can do. So I can, I order CT scans, x-rays, um, they can, you know, deliver babies. They can order any, any prescription. The only thing that we can't order is, um, can't order like medical marijuana, and I, maybe that's true. And also like physician assisted suicide drugs have to come from MDs and not PAs, I think. But I think all that, in all, not a bad job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause what I wanted was like, I wanted to be in charge. I wanted to be able to make decisions and PAs make clinical decisions. They use critical thinking skills. They make, you know, complex medical decisions. It is a uh, camaraderie with the physician. And it's definitely not, I mean, you could definitely work for a doctor that treats you like you're less than them if you, they are out there, but like for the most part, doctors really know nowadays, like how profitable PAs are for their practice. And specifically, you know, you sort of, like you said, gender affirming bottom surgery, and, and we'll get into sort of your resume in a second, but did you receive any kind of additional training for your expertise or for your niche? So what I did, not specifically, so uh, I went to school in Pittsburgh. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I went to Chatham University. And so the first year of PA school is your like lecture year where you're in you're just being lectured at 24 hours a day until your brain explodes. And you take a lot of notes probably. You take a lot of notes and a lot of tests that are like do or die. And like, it's, it's really intense. And then the second year is all of your rotation. So that's when you go out as a little baby intern into the world and do different medical disciplines. So in Pittsburgh, there happens to be like a lot of med schools and nursing schools and PA schools. So it's hard to place all the students from all those schools in the city So we were encouraged to travel if we could do that. So I asked my school if I could go to a different state for each rotation and in that rotation be with like underserved populations. So in a way that like, if you're in a religious subgroup or a cultural group of people, like the way that people receive medicine is very much affected by, you know, there's like the, like Jehovah's Witnesses don't take blood and stuff like that. 
I wanted to know all that stuff. So like I first went to Yuma, Arizona and I did pediatrics with, um, you know, children that live on the border. So they may or may not have documentation. Parents may or may not have documentation. This was a clinic where it was well known in the community that people could come there to have their kids treated and wouldn't be at risk for, um, you know, being turned in or mm -hmm. anything like that. So that's where I learned a lot of really important things like, you know, kids take liquid antibiotics, but if they don't have a refrigerator to keep it in, like how do you treat someone for strep throat if they can't properly store the medication? Um, if a Man, kid you're never... right about that critical thinking because I was like, that's, you know, <laughs> this is all very important details. Yeah, so then you have to get a little bit, uh, you know, MacGyver-ish whenever it comes to giving people um, medication or, or, you know, knowing like, hey, this might be the only time I see this kid for treatment in the next five years or right. seeing people who are five years old that this is the first time they've ever been to a doctor. Like how many times, how many vaccines can you give someone in one day? If someone missed every single one, like they don't talk about that in your right. textbooks. Right. Um, so I did that. And then I did uh, psychiatry in a Mormon camp in Utah. So basically how people who are in a sense, like hyper-religious, I don't want to like, you know, any level of religion is, is fine. And there's nothing wrong with Mormon church, but it's a big part of their life and their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And it certainly affects how they receive and perceive mental health. Um, so that was fascinating. And I kept very detailed notes of like all of the patients that I saw and it was, it was really great. Um, and then I did dermatology on a migrant field in uh, with migrant field workers in California. So people who work out in like the blistering sun all day long, um, have no access to healthcare. And that actually was really interesting because it was a dermatology rotation. So it was at like a med spa where they did a bunch of like, you Botox, know, all that stuff, fee yeah. for service, tons of money. So then this doctor could support seeing all of these non-insured patients and give them uh, you know, pretty expensive skincare treatments can be pretty expensive, especially things for like psoriasis, like injections can be like $500 a month, um, treating them for free. So that was wow. really cool. Um, and then I did primary care or family medicine on the Blackfeet Indian reservation in Montana. Uh, so kind of like where the one hospital in town is the one-stop shop for everybody. Um, you know, there's doctors that like will pull teeth there if they have to, that kind of thing. Um, I did like a dental block when I, like, that's not part of Wow. Training, you can do anything. I, that's what I feel like. I feel very scrappy. I feel like, and now that I'm in surgery, I'm like, bring it. Like, <laughs> um, and yeah, eventually so you came out to LA. I mean, I don't want to cut you off. No, I no, feel no, like I you it, could yeah. go on for an hour. I, this is fascinating that we have to, we, you have to write a book. I hope that's on your plan. <laughs> that's somewhere in your plan. Yeah. So then I came to LA because my first job was at the LGBT center doing HIV research. Um, I hadn't had any previous experience with the LGBT community specifically, but having experiences with other groups of people, it's not about the characteristics specific to that group. It's about just like how you walk into the conversation as an open person with a non-judgmental um, presence that makes someone feel comfortable enough to talk to you. Or if they don't, then to still make them feel comfortable enough to come back. Like the goal is to always, someone should leave an appointment with you and feel okay if they had to see you again. Right. <laughs> you know, so. So that, so now. a lot of coffee, sorry. Oh no, I, this, this is fast. <laughs> this is fascinating. I didn't even know all of that about you. That's so mm -hmm. cool. So, so I met okay. Scott during that time in LA. Yeah. yeah. What a journey. 
I know. <laughs> so currently, what are you exactly doing? So currently, I work in a hospital clinic setting where um, it's the gender affirming surgery team um, on a, in, in the department of plastic surgery. So we do bottom surgery essentially. And then also the, uh, facial feminization program. So I'm the clinical support to both of those programs. Um, so what bottom surgery means is, um, you know, you could say gender affirming surgery, bottom surgery is pretty, pretty widely accepted too. So trans feminine surgery is a vaginoplasty. Uh, so, so converting someone assigned male at birth to a female genitalia. And then uh, for trans masculine surgeries, there's metoidioplasty and phalloplasty, which is converting um, vaginal genitals into uh, phallic genitals, essentially. So this is a perfect transition to the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is essentially what you're saying. I was, I was wondering if you could just lay out for a person who's maybe never even thought about this, mm -hmm. the healthcare of a trans person versus the healthcare of a cis person and just the general things we haven't thought of. Like, because when I think of me, I think every time I get a yeast infection, it's so hard to get a Diflucan. I mean, Diflucans mm -hmm. need to be over the counter. I say it all the time, Definitely. but that's me. So what the basic needs and care of a trans person and, and, and all the things they need to seek, um, the surgery, the medicines, et cetera, um, sort of anyone out there who, again, doesn't know, like, what would that look like to someone? Whenever a transgender body is seeking healthcare, um, whether or not that healthcare they're um, trying to attain is related to being trans or not, we know that there is a lot of discrimination against transgender patients. Um, there was a famous case in the early 90s of Tyra Hunter. She was a trans woman who was in a car accident, um, needed roadside um, medical care. And once the ambulance drivers or the EMTs removed her clothing and saw that she had a penis, they stopped working on her and she ended up dying. And then even whenever she got to the emergency room, the emergency doctor didn't perform any medical care. Um, the EMTs were not held responsible, but the uh, it was happened in Washington, D.C. They were held liable. Um, and so th that's just a terrible example of, you know, one one instance. Right. The stories that patients have told me, like dentists, chiropractors, everything. Um, a lot of uh, healthcare providers don't have language around transgender healthcare. LGBT medicine in general is sort of a new emerging field in terms of the awareness of it. Um, people who have been doing this work for a long time, like the LGBT center and those health clinics have been around for a long time, recognizing the need. And I think that LGBT health in general was born out of the HIV crisis mm -hmm. and knowing that there are different, there are differences. Um, if you are a lesbian woman, you have different health needs than someone who is not. If you are a transgender woman, you have different health needs. So a lot of it is that um, providers don't know how to talk about sex. They don't know how to talk about sexual orientation. They don't know how to talk about genitals. They often don't even ask if you're straight or gay. Um, if you say you're married, they assume that means you're monogamous and that kind of thing. Um, so with healthcare rights in general, Medicare banned all surgeries for, uh, it was like 33 years that all those surgeries were banned. So anyone who's on like disability or Medicare is the healthcare coverage you get when you turn 65 and retire was not able to pursue any trans services. So that was true for private insurance and state insurance as well. States along the way were realizing that um, transgender healthcare, especially surgeries and, and medical interventions are life-saving 
because that's the medical consensus. That is true. Um, so a lot of states like California, Seattle, or, I mean, Washington and Oregon have started, you know, just sort of on their own requiring that private insurance plans cover these surgeries. With the Affordable Care Act, um, Section 1557, Obama, uh, Barack Obama said that it was illegal to discriminate uh, for pre-existing conditions, meaning gender identity. So that means that you cannot not offer someone insurance because they're trans, and you have to offer transgender services, um, which means hormones, surgery, et cetera. I did not um, realize that that was what was included in pre-existing conditions. I knew mm-hmm. that 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 trans health care um, was you weren't allowed to discriminate anymore, but but I didn't realize it was due to the fact that it was a considered a pre-existing condition. Yes. That's really interesting. Yeah, and the actual word is sex, so you can't yes. discriminate based on sex. And so then the new ruling with the HHS Department of Health and Human Services that was earlier this month, their ruling is that they have reverted the interpretation of sex back to the biological nature of that definition, which is male and female, um, meaning that any federally sponsored health care plan can now say we're not going to cover any trans surgeries and also maybe we're not even going to cover any trans people for anything um so that's obviously very scary for people at this time because we've already had surgeries delayed nationwide because of the pandemic so now there are patients who are at risk of you know potentially losing that coverage um what has happened is that many trans um, ally groups, so Lambda Legal, Trans Law Center, these organizations, and the Los Angeles LGBT Center, um, have sued they, the Department of Health and Human Services. So they're going to hope that a judge puts a stay on the order. So then it doesn't go through until there's another administration, which hopefully isn't the current one. Um, because just a few days later, the Supreme Court decided that you can't discriminate against someone in terms of employment based on gender identity um, or sexual orientation, which that is a barrier to care. In this country, you have to have a job to have health care. So if you can fire someone for being trans and gay, and it happens all of the time, and even in Los Angeles, um, then you can't get health care. So we know that in terms of like cancer screenings, um, just basic health maintenance um the transgender community one doesn't have access to health care in the same way as everybody else and when they do it's typically not as good so that's what um a lot of people are trying to work to change now and just trying to i mean every time i do something like this i get so many messages on linkedin or whatever from people who are like nurses or pas or whatever that are like how do i learn what you know and it's like i there there are those things out there and we're we just have to like continue sharing them um so yeah wow it's funny i have all these notes here but i basically have all all of what you just said um in my own words um because I was doing my own research about everything mm. that has happened in the last month um you know starting with the supreme court ruling um for the word sex now means gender identity and sexual orientation, not just male or female. And it's interesting that you say, okay, so now you're, you will not be fired for, you know, having your sexual orientation or gender identity. However, now you can get Mm -hmm. this insurance for your job, but the insurance will not cover any of your care. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the word sex, it means one thing in this rule, the ruling that just happened in the Supreme Court, but now the rollback on, on the, um, on the healthcare, they have said, mm-hmm. oh no, the word sex does not mean that. 
Right. So it means it in the Supreme Court, but it does not mean it in the healthcare. Right. Which I feel like that can't that can't be. I mean, I don't know anything right. about law or how it works, but I feel like when we decide on the definition of a word, and also that is so stupid because anyone who has ever seen any patients knows that there's a lot of variations of sex. I mean, there are people who have all kinds of genital situations. There are people who are born intersex. There are people who have just differences in development. There are people who have things like Klinefelter syndrome and that kind of thing that, you know, we know that there are genetic, you know, and phenotypical variances of sex. So I don't know. And the reason, the actual, the re, the actual reason that they said that this ruling is beneficial is because healthcare um, institutions won't have to mail uh, wordage to people in 15 different languages about the non-discrimination act, saying that it'll save people a lot of money, like with printing paper. And it's like, what are you talking about? How is that how you're justifying I can't, this? I, it's so oh. It makes my head hurt. It's so, Mm -hmm. I mean, I get so much junk mail every day. Geico really wants me to sign up. (laughs) There's just so much mail. That's a, that's a whole other platform. Uh Biden, are you listening? No more junk mail 2021. Okay. I can't get any more mail. Leave me alone. It all goes in the trash. Mm hmm. Uh, That's not what we're here to discuss. Mom things. Mm -hmm. I also on my Instagram, it's always like, do you want, uh, like the, cases the line of the month case oh right mm-hmm. or like rehab it's always like those two things that's showing me it's like interesting <laughs> maybe they're in cahoots you know like they're I working know. together on each other <laughs> oh, yeah. everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Oh, yeah. So, Kayla, you kind of got into this, but just so everyone's on the same page, the the rollback that just occurred, um, I'm going to just read a couple things that I was uh, researching earlier. And by research, I mean my fiance told me. Um, He's he's the most politically connected (laughs) person I've ever met. Um, So our president filed an executive order. Um, I asked what that was. Um, It's an order that the president can state how a law is enforced. And all presidents have used these, not all, but for a long time, presidents have used these to sort of get what they want, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, but Trump has used them throughout his presidency to sort of get around laws he doesn't like, um, perhaps rolling back environmental protections, um, cutting funds for things, et cetera. So so he decided um, to roll back Obama, the Affordable Health Care Act coverage, um, and change what the word sex means. Um, so now it does not include trans people. So th- like you said, they lost health care services. Mm-hmm. So what does this rollback mean to trans people in terms of their health care? Just straight up. What is it? So you said that the surgeries are now put on hold. Yeah. So surgeries were on hold. I mean, that varies from location to location based mm-hmm. on how they're, res- uh, how they're responding to COVID. But, um, 
yeah, a lot of what's called elective surgeries uh, have not been taking place because, um, you know, hospitals are dealing with the pandemic. So those so are ju- on hold in. So just in general, elective surgeries are surgeries that are not life threatening. But this also includes things like colonoscopies and mammograms and like uh, uh, other surgery. I mean, even like certain cancer surgeries and stuff like there's a lot of surgeries that are not taking place right now. And right. the word elective um I try to not say that whenever I'm talking to patients because trans surgeries, while they're not life-threatening in the moment, we know that they're life-saving. Yes. Um, so I feel like that sometimes that can be a little insensitive. But um, I completely hear that. Yeah. So what that means is that if this would take if this would actually go into effect, it would take place August 19th. So that mm-hmm. would mean that um, you may be provided trans services, but you know then you would eventually like get the bill if. Um, you know, your provide if your insurance provider doesn't plan to cover it. So there's private insurance plans mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that uh, so it's different states laws are going to supersede this federal uh, plan anyway. So like California and states like that, there are certain parts, there are certain trans surgeries that actually fall under the reconstructive surgery clause or act um, in California. So facial feminization is one of those. So I feel like that won't be affected. Um, but then, but that's so state any, by state. Not everybody has state that. By state, right. yeah, not everybody has that. There are a lot of states that don't have a single trans surgeon. Um, so any federal sponsored health plan, so Medi-Cal, Medicare, Medicaid, um, those patients won't be able to have trans surgeries. Uh, federal employees, so federal employees already, uh, facial electrolysis and breast augmentation aren't covered, which is uh, not what other healthcare plans do. Um, and then veterans. But I really think that- Oh, will you ahead, share that stat that you shared on throwing shade about trans, trans veterans? Yeah, one out of five uh, transgender people are veterans or in the military, which is double the stat, the statistic for cisgender people. I have patients who very humbly like want to have their surgery done so that they can serve in the military because you can't transition while you're actively serving. If you do it before you get there, then you can be in your preferred name and gender, but you can't go through the process while you're there. Um, and I have patients who are like, yeah, I want to have this done so that I can be a Marine. Like my, you know, my dad was a Marine or my whatever. And it's just like, it, makes, it just makes me want to cry. Cause it's like for that institution to so clearly discriminate against them and make it unsafe. Uh, and then for people to still, to still want to do it. It's very noble. And then when they get out of the military, you know, they get their health care through the Veterans Association. So we see a lot of patients who, you know, get their primary care at the VA, but then access like their LGBT health care at something like the LGBT center where they essentially like pay out of pocket for those services. Um, I don't think this will go into effect. I don't want to give anybody false hope that, mm-hmm. you know, that it's all going to be fine because you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, but like you said, with like the Supreme court, like they can't, that that's like a duality that doesn't make sense. Um, and it's really interesting. The timing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ben was discussing this earlier because he's all about those conspiracies mm -hmm. and, uh, it was, it was a real statement, uh, the ruling that the ruling occurred after, yeah, which like it's so weird how obsessed with trans people white cis straight people are. <laughs> it's like 
why are you so obsessed with me? Like, just right. get over. I mean, we they exist in spaces that you may may or may not even know. Uh, you've probably been in the bathroom with a trans person. There's also that statistic that like more Republican like senators and congressmen have been arrested for lewd activity in restrooms than any than trans people. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I just my heart just kind of breaks for patients that are in that situation, and I really hope you know because a lot of people are experiencing isolation and stuff like that right now and to just have like these two huge blows um to your transition is is not easy so truly what can we as allies as citizens who are um against this rollback we want to keep trans lives safe we want to help them as best we can get the care they need. What are some opportunities out there for us? Maybe that you could recommend to us, friends of trans folks, pe- mm-hmm. trans folks in our families, things like that. I know you mentioned some on throwing shade, just like offering to drive to appointments or things like that. But just, and mm-hmm. I know um, everyone's state is different, and truly, your state has more power than the federal ruling, um, as Kayla mentioned. So that's a blanket note to get more involved on the local state level in your community mm-hmm. in general. That's something that I'm working on right now. And a lot of us are, but is there any kind of tips out there you can give just as a, as a citizen, as a, an, as an ally, not as someone in the healthcare world? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, donating to a local LGBT center, that is often the first place in any city that an LGBT person is going to go. Um, you know, a lot of LGBT centers have shelters for trans youth and things like that and offer a lot of protections and they can always use more money or volunteering like at centers like that. Like you don't have to be, so like I do LGBT work, but like I'm not LGBT. And I think a lot of people think maybe like if they're going to get into that space, they should be a part of the community or they should be a healthcare worker, but like volunteering at those kinds of places, um, is great. Mm -hmm. Also just knowing a little bit more about, um, terminology and things like that. That's really important to transgender people in terms of like weaponizing pronouns against them. So, uh, one thing that I like to say is if, if you're talking to a trans person and you accidentally misgender them and you say like he or she, whenever, if they correct you, um, don't say sorry, say thank you. Like, thank you for correcting okay. me. Because if you say sorry, then they have to say like, no, it's okay. And right, it's, right. It's okay that it's not okay. Um, so just acknowledging it. And also if you know that you misgendered somebody, but you they didn't say anything, it's okay if you acknowledge it and say like, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, you know, um, it is difficult for people sometimes to gender people correctly, especially if English isn't your first language, because there's a lot of languages out there that are very gendered or oh, yeah. don't have gender at all. You know, if you're speaking a different language, then that can be difficult. Um, so acknowledging misgendering, if just just having that knowledge base, because I feel like yes. a lot of times if you want to step into a situation, it's like, well, I don't know what to say. So what, what do I say? Um, so some of those things would be like, you know, so when we say, so transgender is not a noun, you don't want to say like a transgender person, like a transgender, it's a quality of that person. Um, you know, we have non-binary folks, gender non-conforming. Um, also knowing that if a person is trans, a lot of times they have to sort of like stick their flag in one binary end of the gender spectrum where they may identify a little bit more binary. Um, so like not all trans females are super femme and not all trans males are super masculine. Um, 
And I really think that for me personally, whenever I started seeing patients who are, who identified as non-binary, or I had a few patients, I've had a few patients that are identified as two-spirit, um, that's when I really, my mind sort of blew open in terms of what I knew gender to be, mm-hmm. because I was still very like, oh, trans females want to be like Kim K or like trans males, like want to be very masculine. It's like, when you're looking at a person and you're like, wow, you really are of no gender. <laughs> it's really fascinating. And it makes you think like, it's not, it's not real. Like we right. we've up. just all been so programmed to always label a person. Right. 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 And it's in a defense because we're animals and we would need to make sense of our surroundings. So like with facial feminization surgery, sometimes they make like just the tiniest differences in the measurements of someone's bone structure, but that immediately tells the person looking at them, this person is not a male. This mm-hmm. is a female, which is pretty interesting. Your eyes are like always doing like face math to try to like figure out right stuff about people. Very interesting. I was wondering if I wanted, I wanted to maybe just briefly discuss black trans lives specifically, um, because I've been reading a lot about, you know, Rhea Milton, Dominique Fells, um, you know, fatal, I've read that fatal violence disproportionately affects transgender women of color, um, you know, because they're sort of in those intersections of racism and transphobia, homophobia, um, and, and you were naming a couple organizations earlier. Um, so I was wondering, Kayla, if you knew or if you'd shout out maybe any specific accounts we can follow or charities, yes. organizations, so we can learn more and support Black trans lives specifically. Yes. So Blossom Brown, she is an amazing trans woman of color, um, great advocate for the community. Let me look at what her actual Instagram is. It's Blossom C. Brown. Mm-hmm. Great name. Um, yeah, she's great. Uh, she has. I love double initials. Great- I'm a double yes. initial gal myself. Oh yeah, yeah. No. Yep. Uh, yeah, my daughter too. Um, Cute. Uh, what was I gonna say? Trans Latina Coalition has been fighting for uh, years. They're so amazing and so organized, and they put out great information. In 2016, they put out a big report um, about the state of health of uh, transgender women of color. Um, in Los Angeles, and then I think through nationally. So there's great data there. Um, again, the LGBT Center in Los Angeles is a great uh, place that a lot of trans women of color go. And yes, I think this is something that's so interesting to me. And I want to find someone who can who can speak to this more in terms of like psychology or sex therapy or something. But the, I think what's what's very interesting about the violence that happens to trans women of color is that it tends to be at the hands of men mm-hmm. who sometimes can be assumed to be straight identified that are having sexual, some sort of, there's some sort of sexual interaction, um, whether it's actually, you know, sexual or if it's like catcalling or something, the violence that happens to them is usually very severe. It is more than someone who would snap and like kill their wife or something. It's, People are often find found mutilated, um, you know, killed like without even any weapons. Like people kill people like with their bare hands or with objects. And I think that that deep, deep rooted homophobia, transphobia that men 
cis straight men or men in general have speaks to like that reaction is 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 so sad yes that that they could drive people to be that way and then they they go on and what live normal lives and be like oh yeah there's that person that i i don't know i think we need to know exactly what that is right why why do men why do men do that right yeah (laughs) you know truly um it's insane it's it is it's so dark and and again just the past month i've been really reading more and more about it and and i encourage everyone to do the same it's certainly not an easy read but this is something that we need to all be aware of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and so i encourage my honeys to do the research and i'm gonna definitely be following blossom <laughs> yeah blossom See what, yes Um, The other thing, too, is that a lot of people, the statistic of, like, the average life expectancy of trans women of color is 35. And um, I do think... That's how old I am. (laughs) uh, I think that we have no specific... We don't really know where that number came from um, that hasn't been validated or verified anywhere. And not to detract from the immediate public health crisis that is happening to trans Mm -hmm. women of color... But if you are a trans woman, I think it would be hopeful to hear that, like, maybe that number isn't true. Right. Maybe there are trans women that are, maybe the average life expectancy is higher. I mean, I, I just hope that that's not true. And I hope that we kind of find, as more research is happening and people are asking these questions of trans people, we're going to have more data and mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, better information. Yes. Excellent. Okay. That's a perfect place for a break because- okay. Honey, we have a, a ge- we're shifting gears now. If that's cool with you, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. because I did bill you as sort of the sex talk medical health person. Oh, great. Um, and I think one of the things I've enjoyed about hearing your interviews um, on other shows is just you're an advocate for, like you were saying earlier, talking about your sex talking about your health with your doctor in general, taking your sexual health into your own hands and sort of the questions that you should be asking things that you should be saying to your doctor. Um, these are things that like I never considered until I heard Mm -hmm. you on throwing shade and I was like, Oh shit, I should probably tell my doctor that I'm into this and this and this or like (laughs) things like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you, and one thing you talked about was that I thought was really interesting was trauma informed care. Mm-hmm. So if there is something that might be traumatic for you in terms of getting an exam, um, you can express that to your doctor and hopefully they will be a little more mindful. If you could maybe talk a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah. So it is well established in literature that if you have a history of physical, sexual, or even emotional abuse, there's probably some level of pelvic floor dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, pelvic floor dysfunction is something that can be very obvious where you like you know, after you have babies and stuff, you like pee your pants or whatever, or it could just be like you have pain with sex or you have pain with um, vaginal exams or just sexual activity and things like that. Um, And it doesn't even have to be a full-blown pelvic dysfunction, but if you're nervous around pelvic exams. So, I mean, you think about this, the first time we have this exam, we're like maybe 16 years Mm -hmm. old or 17 years old or something younger, if you're sexually active then, and it's invasive. You have to get completely naked. Some, or someone is sitting at v- vagina level. To oh, and you. they make you scoot real far down. And they make you scoot real <laughs> far. And it's like, it's not comfortable. And I think that we should recognize 
that. And there are providers, you know, I'm sure that there are people out and I'm not saying this in terms of like, you need to enter this room thinking that your provider is somehow a predator. What I'm saying is that if you create a baseline for yourself, every time you have this exam, then you've, you've created your safe space and then you know what to ask for. So any woman who uh, goes to the emergency room with stomach pain, like they often, they wanna look around the pelvis and you know stuff like that. Um, so if you're having a routine exam in terms of like SCDs or a pap smear or anything, um, you know, some things that you can advocate for would be if you don't feel comfortable with a male provider, it is totally okay if the gender of the person providing the exam bothers you. If you have trauma at the hand of a man, it's probably, it could be triggering to have an exam by a man. Um, it's always okay to ask, there should be a chaperone in the room and that's for the provider as well. Um, any healthcare providers, it's always a good idea to just have another person in the room who's um, staff just, you know, to be safe and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, speculums. So mm -hmm. uh, there are different sizes of speculums. So whenever someone is examining your vagina, there's two, there's two kinds of tests. So uh, generally there's a pap smear. So that's whenever someone actually takes cervical cells to send to a lab to see if you have precancer or HPV. When that exam is being performed, someone's going to insert a speculum. They're probably going to look around the vaginal walls, but they mostly just collect that sample. They may or may not test for STDs. Um, so you probably have to ask for that. The other mm -hmm. thing is just a general pelvic exam where someone's just like looking inside, um, looking at the cervix to see if it's like inflamed or anything like that, seeing if you have any uh, discharge in the vaginal vault or any issues. Um, and then a bimanual. So someone would insert uh, two fingers inside, and then they feel their hand on your pelvis to try to bring their fingers together. That exam is kind of getting phased out because one, like no one really knows what they're feeling anyway. Like every time I was a student and I was like, oh yeah, I feel the ovaries. No, I didn't. I mean, I <laughs> did maybe. <laughs> every time I get a pap, they do that and the pap. I bet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, you're a thin person. So it's probably like pretty easy. Yeah. To like bring your fingers together and feel someone's anatomy, but you can imagine like it's difficult to find an ovary. I don't know. There's people who are really good at this exam that are probably like, bitch. <laughs> but I think that that part of the exam too can be like uncomfortable. Oh, for sure. Um, so I had a really hard time with pelvic exams uh, my whole life. And I never really had any specific reason why, but I would cry. I would get so uncomfortable. I They would be very painful. Um, I never in that moment could also have the like agency to ask about right. something that was embarrassing. Or Nobody tells that, you, you have that right. As a person, you just assume yeah. this person is wearing a white coat. I'm going to do whatever they say. And it's horrifying, but I'm yeah. just going to deal with it. Right. And I just wanted it to be over. Uh, and whenever I was getting an IUD put in before I ever had kids, I was seeing a midwife and surprise, surprise, I got great care from a midwife. Um, Your midwife she, put your IUD in for you? Yeah. So she's like a gynecology midwife. So she, it was before I ever had kids. So I was like, oh, I'm going to get an IUD. So I got an IUD and whenever I was getting it put in, which by the way, IUDs are amazing, but I, and I think that, um, we're pushing a lot for, to, cause it's a more reliable form of birth control and we want younger people to use them. But I can't stress enough that like, if someone is 16 years old and never had sex, like putting in, a, in an IUD is something that you should, you should schedule an hour, not because it's going to be painful, but just to take the time to get someone ready for this kind of invasive thing. The other thing too, is like speculums make that ratchet sound mm -hmm. that like very weird, like medieval medicine, like, yeah, and, uh, they are pretty intimidating. People, 
yeah, I'm like, you're going to hear these sounds. You're going to, uh, the lube is going to be cold X, Y, Z. So when I saw this midwife to put in my IUD, she could tell I was really nervous because my legs, like I couldn't get my legs to relax. She went into her office and she grabbed a tissue and she just put some drops of lavender oil on it, like essential oil. She placed it on my chest and she asked me to just like take some big deep breaths. And she had her hands on my stomach and she just helped me relax. And then she put an IUD in, like she was done. Like I saw her take off her gloves and I was like, wait, you did it already? Like, I didn't even know it had happened. Like I thought I was still like getting ready. So that was really powerful for me because I realized like how quickly with just breathing techniques, like you can get someone to relax or also just putting your hand on them and letting them know. That's why like, I always, I mean, pre COVID, you know, you always want to like listen to someone's heart or just like put a hand on their shoulder because I really think that like touch and establishing that with a patient is, is really important. Um, so yeah, those exams, you can ask for smaller speculums. There are many sizes, um, you know, in an ER, they have to have like a pediatric speculum. So they have to have ones very, very small. So you can ask for smaller ones. Um, yeah. And it should just, Oh, I also recommend wear socks. And so whenever you put your feet in the things, you don't put your barefoot in there. Smart. Yeah. I mean, I can't even tell you the opposite experience I had getting an IUD. Uh, <laughs> to this day, the most horrific pain I've ever felt physically in my life. And I got it in at Planned Parenthood and not to dog Planned Parenthood because I don't know if I would have survived my 20s without it. And the Damn. services they provide are life-saving and they're very important, but you know, the bedside manner there was not the best. Uh, there was at least four people in the room. They were all watching. Um, yeah. and it hurt so bad. It was horrible. It was horrible. Uh, and my legs shook for an hour afterwards. Yeah. And she said yeah. that was my body's visceral reaction to the amount of pain. It was really, really, really painful. Yeah. And the thing is it can be painless. Yes. Wow. I can't even imagine. <laughs> Yeah, they convince themselves that it has to be painful mm -hmm. um, or that uh, with vaginoplasty, like they have to dilate after surgery. And a lot of people like say that that's and it's like it doesn't it doesn't have to be painful. Wow. You don't have to be um, in pain. Yeah. Planned Parenthood and all those places. That's the problem with like nonprofit medicine is right. that those people work. They see 40 patients yes. in a day. It's insane. Yes. She didn't have time to rub lavender oil on my clavicle. <laughs> no. Yeah. And that's the luxury. <laughs> and I don't I blame her. I don't blame her. Right. And that's yeah. another thing too, is like the pain that you experience in healthcare can be directly related to your socioeconomic status. So right. trans women, for example, they have to have full genital electrolysis before they can have surgery because wow. any area that's going to become vaginal tissue so in right. the vaginal canal cannot have hair wow um and that alone grow. is such a daunting task painful time consuming yes yeah and suddenly someone has to get like this close to your penis and they're right. like sh causing pain and stuff that's very triggering and women who can afford um lidocaine injections from a lot of electrology places will offer that and it's usually not a covered benefit um, so if you can pay $300 a session for a lidocaine injection, you can sit there pain free right. and go through five hours. But if you can't afford that, you have to sit through the pain, probably only sit through an hour or two. It takes you much longer. Right. To do. And that whole um, time you're sitting there just stewing in what you're doing in the process and, mm -hmm. and, you know, really having to process also, all of that. Yeah. 
shout out to electrologists because I have got to say we have some super LGBT, like we started referring all these trans women to electrologists and we were like, they're probably gonna be like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> well, I've never done all this like genital electrolysis before. Um, but a lot of people like they're so into it, like they call our office and they're like comparing notes and like different techniques and stuff. So it's really cool. So th those are also like hidden allies uh, for the trans community is our, you know, electrology people and and that might be a good career for somebody listening. I'm, I'm all, oh I'm God. trying to get everybody a job. A laser, I think electrology machine is like 50 grand. Whoa. So you like lease that. Yeah, but you can make that back. If you get that license, you just get the space. I mean, I'm not mad at that for myself. <laughs> I'm, my whole yeah. life is flashing before my eyes. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Kayla, can we get into some questions from the honeys? Yes. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Sorry. I just want to say, honeys, I'm so grateful and appreciative of the trust that y'all put in me because some we we got some personal questions and everyone's <laughs> identity is safe here. Yeah. Um, so let's go, okay? And if you don't feel comfortable answering these or you can, if you can't speak on them, fair. And we okay. can, you know, move on. The only thing is it can't, so I'm not giving actual medical advice to anybody. Consult okay. your doctor, but this is my opinion. Got it. <laughs> Very yeah. fair. Oh, yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Oh, yeah. Okay, here's a question. Um, is there something medically wrong with a man who doesn't come from vaginal or oral sex? only comes from a hand job or is this just a preference thing that I can stop worrying means my vagina and BJ's suck? <laughs> um, yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with that. So I think that's another thing too, is that uh, cis men often get labeled into like wanting just intercourse and things like that. There's lots of different kinds of sex that are considered normal for couples. Um, so it's totally normal that, um, you know, cause with a hand job, I guess you can get like more specific with your placements and placement. And, you know, the penis is innervated by nerves that maybe there's just, you know, but what's important too, is that if you're not having sex, if you want to have vaginal sex with your partner, I guess she didn't say whether or not they're not having vaginal sex, but yeah, if you do that first and then you're fine and then Right. Him of a hand. That's totally cool. I mean, I know friends who that they only come from going, getting down, being put. Right. What is it? V oral. Yeah. Yeah. Cunnilingus. So everybody gets their own, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair. Okay. Here's a question. I'm a straight woman having anal sex for the first time. <laughs> I love these <laughs> questions. Mm -hmm. What is the proper post-sex hygiene for this? Do I need to tell my gyno about this? Do I need to be examined there now? Fair questions. Very fair question. Yes. So um, post hygiene, I would say. So a lot of people. So there's anal douching. People mm -hmm. do that. Um, after or before? Before and after. Okay. Sometimes people will do that. Um, so there's like shower attachments and stuff. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So afterwards, no. Can you send me an worry. Amazon link? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't use Amazon. <laughs> 
Um, so afterwards, no, I don't think, um, so what can be seen sometimes whenever people do, um, anal douching is that they actually, in the same way that you can do this with a vagina is that they clear out like the good bacteria mm-hmm. and then they can make an imbalance in bacteria. So I think unless it's something that's happening, like every single day, you're probably fine with just like going to the bathroom after, um, you will need to be tested for STDs there. And that's another thing too, is that even if you don't have penetrative anal sex, um, it's probably a good idea to get an anal swab anyway when you get tested because fluids like drip down into Mm -hmm. spaces and things like that um i've tested many uh straight women who test positive for anal gonorrhea or chlamydia and they've never even had sex there um it could be like a finger or anything yeah and people often neglect that area so wait you're telling me you could have a a chlamydia specific to your butt and not have it on your your vagina vagina. wow i am horrified (laughs) Yeah. I'm just worried. Um, By horrified, I mean worried for myself. Yeah. No, and it's, yeah. And a lot of people, like, you may not notice that you're having any symptoms. And the important thing with gonorrhea and chlamydia is that um, just because you don't have any symptoms doesn't mean it's not causing you harm. Um, So we know that those STIs can lead to, like, pelvic inflammatory disease, infertility, you know, they can become widespread actually and go throughout your whole body. So that's why it's important to be tested there. Another thing that with anal sex is that a lot of people, uh, so you can get HPV there then if you're having sex there. So that area of medicine, I want to refer to a PA named Jonathan Baker. His uh, Instagram is the rectal rock star. And he is like the leading yeah. PA expert on uh, what's called HRA, like a high resolution anoscopy. So it's basically a pap smear for the rectum. Um, because we know that gay men, so or anyone that participates in gay sex, I'm not gay sex, anal sex, um, uh, is at a risk of, um, anal cancer specific to HPV, but those guidelines in terms of, um, like, uh, surveillance and treatment aren't like very well established yet. Um, could my gyno do an anal swab on me or is this specific thing I I have to go to a specific place for? No. So your gynecologist could do it. They may not be familiar. So it's, it's surprising that like a lot of providers, um, STD testing, is not as people don't really know how to order it. Like sometimes even gynecologists, a lot of women, when you get tested for STIs, a lot of um, straight women, they'll ask you to just pee in a cup. And then that's like the extent of your STD testing. That is so bare bones testing. Um, So you have to urinate in a cup, have a swab in the vagina, have a swab in the rectum, a swab in your mouth also, if you perform oral sex and then blood tests for um, hepatitis C, HIV, and syphilis. So a lot of times patients too, you can collect your own swab. If you don't want the gynecologist to do it, like you can probably put a Q-tip in your butt reliably and then put it in a tube. <laughs> um, same thing with the vagina. Even some trans men have been able to, or trans or women who um, don't want a pap smear done by a provider, like people can even reliably get a Q-tip in their cervix. Um, so you, the, the throat test, I recommend you have the provider do it. Cause it's kind of hard to, um, get to the back of your throat, but yeah, that's something you could ask your gynecologist or your primary care doctor. I'm about to get swabbed to filth, honey. That is so interesting. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Um, a couple more questions. Sure. I am a straight female married to a man for five years. I'm petite. I experience tightness and pain in sex. Are there any good techniques? Um, I've talked to my doctor about it and she says it's normal. I'm just very small, but I'm also very dry. My husband's amazing. We use a lot of lube and foreplay. It's gotten better over time, but I feel like I'm the only person experiencing this. Okay, so 
pain and tightness mm-hmm. and dryness. Mm-hmm. Does she say how old she is? Nope. Um, so but we, we know she's very petite. Petite. Okay. So this is something where if you and your partner have what may be like mismatched genitals, mm-hmm. um, where you have difficulty with insertion, petite women can petite vaginas still like have babies and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. There is laxity to the vaginal canal. So this goes back to pelvic floor health. Mm -hmm. So there are some like occupational therapists. This is another thing too. Occupational therapy is sort of have, I mean, it's new to me. They've probably been doing it for a long time, but you know, after people have strokes and stuff and they teach them like how to get in the shower, they're starting to like teach them like, this is how you're going to have sex again and stuff like that. Cause it's a part of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are people who you can actually consult with, um, with your partner, but I would recommend like pelvic floor physical therapy to help with any pain with um, insertion and vaginal dryness is very common. Um, you know, lubrication with sex is really important, but also there's something called estrace cream. So as women age, they tend to have uh, in the absence of estrogen, the vagina gets dry. Um, and sometimes this doesn't bother people at all. Sometimes it's very bothersome and it can happen, you know, in someone's early thirties. So there's an estrogen cream that you can put directly onto vaginal tissue that will help it stay lubricated and like pink and moist and stuff um, that doesn't increase your blood levels of estrogen. So it's like pretty safe to use. I I prescribe it all the time. Um, It's called estrace. Um, So yeah, but I would start with pelvic floor PT and then ask about estrogen cream. So the PT wouldn't be able to prescribe the cream, but primary care could. I mean, I just learned so much. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of people think that vaginal dryness is just like par for the course as you get older, but there are um, ways to do local estrogen replacement in terms of creams and stuff like that, that will help restore those tissues. Cause it can lead to like tearing and things like that. Oh yeah. Pretty painful. Yeah. But also like associating pain with sex will make you not want to do it. Right. Yeah. And then your partner feels bad and then it's not enjoyable for you. And yeah. I want all my honeys to get their fuck on. (laughs) So the other thing too, is if your partner wants to do massage or something, you know, like if you like schedule it, maybe it's like spontaneous sex isn't something that can happen for you. It's something where you need to have like a day or two to know so you can, you know, plan accordingly. This is a great question. Um, a honey says, my sister has interstitial cystitis. Yes. Um, my understanding is it's similar to endo. She has struggled with pelvic pain. Um, she's tormented by people who tell her to just relax. But my honey wants to know, how can I support her? I have a happy and healthy sex life. I feel terrible that she struggles so much. I want to just hear someone speak on this. We don't talk about it enough. There are a lot of people in secret pain out there, especially women. It's, it's really hard. I've talked yes. to friends and I had no clue they were suffering at all. Um, so that's why I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah, interstitial cystitis. I don't have. I don't know too much about that. I know that it is very painful, and it's one of those um, "quote unquote" female diagnoses that people tend to just be like, "Well, it is what it is." Much like endo, right? Um, meaning endometriosis. So I think that to support someone, basically just acknowledging their pain, mm-hmm. 
just acknowledging and let them maybe talk it through. And if, you know, there's going to be any kind of appointments offering to drive someone. Another thing too, is if someone, if you're going to go to a doctor's appointment and someone's going to tell you really personal or important information, it's a good idea to have someone else there just so, because you leave the situation sometimes and you're like, wait, what did he say? Right. Or she say? So to have someone else there, but um, yeah, on secret pain there's on my instagram stories one of the first things is this is this guy that i saw a patient who came in actually because he had um like taken a bunch of viagra so he had like a an erection for a really long time and so he had to come to the er for that and he had this bandage on his neck and i was like well what's up with that bandage and he was like no don't worry about that and i was like well you're in the er i kind of have to look and he had this massive i mean like a foot wide by like you know half a foot tall just gaping hole in the back oh, of his neck Oh no! that he had had for seven years. It started <gasps> off as a mole that he started to scratch and then it got out of control. And then he was so embarrassed by how out of control it was. And the reason that I show that is because you're exa- there's the level of pain that people will live with, the pain and embarrassment and discomfort that people will live with is shocking. And whenever right. you get to be in that situation in the emergency room or in the exam room and you close that door and someone finally reveals this thing to you that has been just like eating away at them. Just like someone relieving that it's just, you know, I'm just so glad that I was the person and I was just like, Hey, it's totally cool. We're just going to fix it. Right. (laughs) We're just going to go to the OR and fix it. It happens, you know? Um, So yeah, secret pain is something that if you, if you have something that's causing pain or not even pain, just like if every time you pee, you accidentally, like if you're, you get pee on your clothes or something like that. Like if you have issues using the restroom, like we do these things every single day. And if we have issues with that, it starts to decrease your self-worth and your quality of life. And people get very, very depressed. And it's something, it breaks my heart when it's something as simple as, cutting a piece of tissue or just prescribing right. a medication, you know? Right. I hear that though. And I, a lot of, a lot of us are like afraid to take up space. Right. And, and so mm-hmm. and I time, hear that. Yeah. yeah. So you deserve it. You deserve to be happy. I say all the time. Okay. Here's a question. Oh, this is a hemorrhoid question. Um, I love hemorrhoids. Yeah. I have, I've never had one, but I've been, you know, I know people have them. Oh, uh, what do who do you see if you think hemorrhoids are making sex painful? Also along those lines, if sex suddenly becomes painful, I've been with the same person for years. I feel like my OBGYNs are great, but they don't take my me seriously about sex pain. How do you find the right doctor or specialist for this? And then an emoji of the smiley that's like gritting its teeth. <laughs> nice. I just I think didn't. That's my I, favorite emoji. Yeah, I just did a uh, did a did a reenactment for Kayla there. Um, yeah. But yeah, so if I've heard that 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 can happen, uh, hemorrhoids can make sex painful. Who do you see for that? Proctologist. So there's actually no such thing as a proctologist. Oh, look um, at me! Look at me! <laughs> no, I said it the other day. I said it like whenever I first came into surgery, and the surgeons were like, "That's there's actually not that thing." Um, they are. Um, uh, colorectal surgeons. Um, so anyway, you could see your primary care. So this is the kind of stuff primary care should be able to do, but a lot of people don't. Um, so another thing is if you tell your provider, like, Hey, I have a thing on my butt Mm -hmm. or my vagina, they have to look at it. Um, so it can't be like, well, what's it feel like? Okay. I'll just like judge based on this. Like, like, People need to lay eyes on these things and see, because sometimes hemorrhoids can be so thrombosed that 
you're actually at a pretty big risk of bleeding. Um, and people can become severely anemic and things like that if they have rectal bleeds. So hemorrhoids can be internal or external. Um, they can happen from a lot of things. So if you have um, sex, anal sex, and you're not relaxed in a sense, like that causes strain. So anytime anything is being inserted or removed from your body in terms of vagina or butt, you should be relaxed. Mm -hmm. That's true for like removing tampons, like don't shove against resistance. So with anal sex, it's like, you should be relaxed. So that can cause hemorrhoids, pregnancy, straining to use the restroom. So a thing I say with pooping is like, if you sit down and you get nice and relaxed and after two or three minutes, nothing has happened, then it's not time to go. Mm -hmm. Then you just like stand up and try again later, drink some water. (laughs) Um, but you should see a primary care provider. So the way that you can treat hemorrhoids is one, if they're external, they tend to be very, very painful. Um, that can actually make people like stop eating because they don't want to use the bathroom and stuff like that. So they can be uh, what's called like lanced. So they can be like opened mm-hmm. up and basically burned closed. Internal ones tend to bleed a lot, but they're kind of painless. Um, so that's probably not what she's experiencing. But any, but she should be able, anyone should be able to say to their primary care provider, I think I have some hemorrhoids and you mm-hmm. should probably look. Over-the-counter treatments are like low-dose steroids, um, but what's really going to treat them is um, like a suppository steroid. So that goes directly to the source that helps to heal the tissue. Um, but it's important to get them to, to get them. To, and some people have them just chronically. They're just prone to them. And that, that's really a bummer. Um, but yeah, talking about sex pain and stuff is something you could bring up to a primary care provider and ask them to refer you to pelvic floor physical therapy. You are doing the Lord's work. But to also mention pelvic floor physical therapy is something where you have to go kind of consistently over a few weeks. Um, they'll give you home exercises and they are going to do an internal exam. They're going to put fingers in your vagina, in your butt, and they're feeling muscles. Um, so just have a heads up that that's part of the exam and treatment. We have one last question and okay, it's great. something that I, has come up on Natribute constantly and I'm so glad they asked this. I would have asked it if not. It says, question for Kayla McLaughlin. Can she explain how to properly wash a vulva? Mm-hmm. I know that douches, et cetera, are bad for the vag, but I've been receiving conflicting guidance from doctors about gentle soap versus no soap for the vulva. And I'm going to go ahead and, and add on to this question. Same for butthole. Mm-hmm. What should we be washing? What should we not be washing? What should we be using? Help me, Kayla. I'm trying to keep it fresh. <laughs> so um, I think that... Um, so for neo vaginas, the trans female vaginas, we do want to douche kind of periodically because the vagina is lined with skin that isn't going to clean itself in the same way that a cis vagina will. Um, you don't have to, if you don't want to, but it's, it's totally okay to do that. So my recommendation is the same for trans vaginas and cis vaginas is that any douching should just be like warm, mildly soapy water. Mm -hmm. So something like a baby soap or something that um, has no scent to it. So like no Dr. Bronner's or anything like that. A lot of people also say vinegar. They put vinegar in douches. I also don't recommend that. That's corrosive to the skin and can actually cause like chemical burns inside. Um, I tell everybody when you're in the shower, you got to put a leg up, Get your hand nice and mildly soapy with some warm water, spread tissue, and get in there and clean stuff. Um, Okay, yeah. So the area on the sides of the clitoris, like where labia come together, labia minora, like touch it, know what's going on down there. Um, 
make sure you rinse all of the soap away. If you have soap stuck in skin folds, that can cause some burns too. Um, if you have a favorite soap, like I would, I would use that. I wouldn't recommend an antibacterial soap. Um, so I would say just a gentle soap and water. Kayla, do what do you, you use? Be honest. We need help. I use um, a, oh, I kind of use Dr. Bronner's in this, in the shower. And but then, don't they I have honestly, unscented? Dr. Bronner's yeah. has unscented. Okay. Um, and I also will just use water in my mm -hmm. hand. Um, and I don't douche. What about I butthole? I would just use soap and water too. And don't worry about like trying to go inside or anything like that. Okay. That like, was my yeah. next question. You are a mind reader. So we don't need to go <laughs> knuckle deep in there. No, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Um, yeah. what you can do sometimes if you want to clean out the rectum, if you were planning on having anal sex is you could do, um, like an enema, like a fleet's enema. Those are something you're going to start going to the bathroom like immediately. So like be in the bathroom whenever you put it in, but it's just something that will like empty the lower um, GI tract and then, you know, wait a day or two and then use it. Cause everyone's afraid when they have anal sex, they're going to like spray poop everywhere. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, you know what? These I are the questions people idea. have. And uh, that's not, you know, that's not how it works um, yeah. as long as you're relaxed and everything. We, we have good control of our bowel and bladder. Um, if you just kind of be mindful of it and think of the area and don't have like just had lunch or something. <laughs> but also at the same time, you know, if you're going to go there, just know that that's where you're going. And if that's something part of it, and you know what, that's, you know, <laughs> you don't go to the art gallery and not expect to see some art. Uh -huh. Am I yeah. right? Yeah. But I do want to say that like whenever you're getting like an, a rectal exam or anything like that, we always say like, it's going to feel like you have to poop. It's going to feel when you have anal sex, it feels like you have to poop, but you probably won't, you know, 99% chance you won't. I encourage all my honeys to experiment and have fun. I definitely pooped whenever I uh, had a baby and I kept asking Scott because the first time I didn't like watch in the mm -hmm. mirror or anything. I actually wore an eye mask because I'm a uh, an introvert. And I was like, I don't want to see what's going on. I want to be in my head and like control my pain. So I didn't see anything. And I kept asking him, my mom, I'm like, so did I, did I poop during labor? And they're like, no, no, don't worry about it. And then like later he was like, yeah, you definitely did. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's very common. <laughs> it happens. And as a medical provider, like it's just something that happens. I mean, I had one time I was doing an exam on a patient and he like kind of started pooping into my hands and I was like, okay, I guess I'm just... <laughs> This is just happening. It, you know what? What is the old saying? Shit happens. <laughs> yeah. I believe that's the saying. Kayla, this has been so wonderful, educational, inspiring. I hope a lot of my honeys sign up to be electrolysis technicians yes. as well as physician assistants. Um, and just everyone out there gets the care they need and does butt stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you is just, you know, do you have any self-care rituals that are personal to you? Um, because again, I still don't know how you are balancing your career, your being a wife, having two babies, your friends, all of it. You mm -hmm. really make it look easy. Um, oh. <laughs> what are some of like the self-care rituals personal to you? Well, I recently got an LED face mask, full on like stormtrooper face mask. Mm -hmm. and, and you I love it absolutely love it yeah um just sitting there for you know 30 minutes and I like listen to a podcast or some music that's really nice I think it really does work like my skin feels a lot you look nicer. really good yeah thanks um so that's part of it um my self-care I tend to 
what else do I do? I'm big on alone time. I need a lot of I need a lot of time by myself. And I don't know to, how you do that. Again, I don't how how young now. are your children? They actually have the same birthday, believe it or not, but they are uh, like two and a half and eight months. Did so, you know my, that did you know that Josh Groban and his brother have the same birthday and same with Diablo Cody's two sons? No. That's amazing. I know um, a lot of random celebrity facts. <laughs> I don't even know who Diablo Cody is. Oh, she's a screen Oscar-winning screenwriter. She wrote Judo. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, okay. she's written a bunch of other movies since, yeah. but um, yeah. Um, I used to do her eyelashes. That's how I know that. And I used to watch oh, Josh cool. Groban's dogs. That's how I know that. It's fine. Whoa. Um, I mean, I've lived is- a life. You're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a stationary bike. I yes. put my bike on a trainer, and that's a nice way to just kind of like move my legs for a couple of minutes. I mean, I'm not on it as much as I should be, but that's a nice way to zone out. I have to like get in my head uh, for at least an hour a day and like think about stuff. I don't know. Daydream. That's, that's I beautiful. also do uh, TM meditation. Um, not every day, but I try to do it a few times a week. I did like a whole class and everything. And I have to say, I did my first pregnancy. I did my first labor without TM and I did my second one with it. And I mean, I know it was my second time around, but just drastically different the second time with having that to calm myself down and center myself during pregnancy or labor because both were like over 24 hours. So it was crazy. I trained to do TM and have completely fallen out of practice. And every day I say to myself, today I'm going to meditate again. And I don't. So maybe this will inspire me to finally get back on the wagon. I mean, sometimes I'll just like, even when I'm giving the baby a bottle or something, I'm like, this isn't going to be 20 minutes. I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit here and say my mantra. And like, to me, that's enough. I'm also very easy on myself. I never, I don't know. I, I forgive myself pretty easily when it comes to stuff like that. And that is such a beautiful skill. That is beautiful. We can all do that more. Yeah. yeah. Kayla, this has been so fun. Um, already a top favorite ep of Natch, I'll be honest. Um, I know you recently have decided you're going to start follow- letting people follow you on Instagram. Um, yeah. Could you give us your Instagram, any other information or websites or anything you want us to visit? So it is um, K-L-A McLaughlin. So like K-La McLaughlin at Instagram. Um Blossom Brown was the other lady. Yes. We talked about Blossom C. Brown. Um, also, there's the Trans Latina Coalition that has a great Instagram. Um, Queer Meducation is a podcast done by Karen Berger, who's also a PA, who goes into depth with all of these um, topics we talked about. So that's if you're a healthcare provider, just want to know more of like the nitty gritty, she goes into all that stuff. Um, Rectal Rockstar is Jonathan Baker. I'm following that. Yeah. (laughs) He's the PA in, I think he's in New York and uh, yeah, he's just got a ton of information about um, like anal healthcare. Um, But yeah, I think before I was trying to like stay private because I don't want to I don't, I don't know. But now I think like if anyone has any, I can't answer any specific medical questions. Cause that's what was happening to me. A lot of was getting messages like, and if I open it, that like kind of establishes like patient relationship. Right. I um, hear you. That happens with me too. Sometimes people will be like, Hey, do you think this looks like a cyst? And they'll send me like a photo <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm a comedian. I wish I could help you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, any questions I, I I'm well, be- welcoming them now. That's what I, I can do for folks. So if you're a trans person or just healthcare provider interested in the topic, anything like that, just reach out. You're doing the Lord's work. 
Miss McLaughlin. You too. It is so lovely to see you and to speak with you. Thank you for you coming too. on Attribute. And uh, I hope you have some moments of solitude on that bike later. <laughs> um, kiss those babies and Scott for me. Um, and I'm just going to tell everybody what I say at the end of every up, which is you deserve to be happy. Yeah, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to all my honeys. You deserve to experiment sexually. You, ex- you deserve to feel safe in your medical environments. You deserve health care. You deserve all of it, sweeties. So Kayla and I are looking out for you. You deserve to be happy. Don't forget to cream that neck and keep your fringe fresh. Yes, honey. A, podca- <clears throat> A podcast network.